Well, it is so good to be here. I want to thank, uh, thank Jason for honoring me with this Good Friday service. We don't celebrate. Is, is celebrate the right word? I think it can be celebrate the death of Christ, although we generally think of, of observing the day that the Lord Jesus was crucified. And yeah, Jason is right. He said, well, should I leave this comfortable place where I am familiar with my surroundings and go to the burg of Topeka? And I said, are you kidding? Stay where it's safe. Don't ever venture out. <laughs> that was for yesterday. That was April Fool's. I did not tell him that. And what I didn't know at the time when we were about the last lunch they were serving at Oakwood outdoors was that about 10 months later I'd be faced with the same exact scenario. Leave a church you helped plant and come back home and pastor a church not even a mile from my house. And I did. So just so you know, that's, that's what happened. Well, this is going to be somewhat of a repeat for my dear wife Heidi and Steve Smith, but the rest of you, bear with me. So last Lord's Day was Jesus' triumphal entry, and as I've been preaching through the book of John, in John's narrative, in his historical account of the events of the life of Christ, that took place way back in chapter 12. Well, this is chapter 19. There's an awful lot of material between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the Gospel of John and the time where we finally get to what he told his disciples for this very purpose was I sent. And now he heads to Calvary. And if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. It's one thing to know that a thing has happened, that an event took place. It's quite another thing to know why it happened. In the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us partially the reasons behind the crucifixion of Christ said, of Christ. But as Christ said in John 14, these things I've spoken to you while I was with you, while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, Comforter, Paracletos, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So when we look at the narrative in the Gospel of John, we're also thinking in terms of how these events were explained by the apostles, by Dr. Luke, by the Apostle Paul, by Peter, by John later on. So beginning in verse 17, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, 
and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Whom they pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Let, let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, that will, that'll work. It is, and thanks be to God. The title of this is called Finished at the Cross. What was finished at the cross? We'll get to that in a second. So as with the rest of John's gospel... It seems that he doesn't see it absolutely necessary that he repeats everything in the other three Gospels. And it's even more manifest here at the scene of the crucifixion. John leaves out some details, and he includes others that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. For example, he leaves out the fact that Simon the Cyrene was drafted to carry the cross of Christ. Jesus' words to the wailing women on, on the way. The mocking that Jesus receives from the Jews. Remember, if you are son of God, come on down. The three hours of darkness that fell as he hung on this Roman tree. How about the famous phrase that's actually a textual variant, but we know it by heart. Father, forgive them for they... 
And thank you for quoting in King James, because that's what I grew up on. <laughs> what about the thief asking Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And that part of Psalm 22, it would be like the first opening line of a, of a hymn for us. Actually, it should be from the psalm. We should be singing it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The veil torn from top to bottom in the temple. And, of course, the centurion's confession, surely this man was the Son of God. But John also adds other details. This whole objection of the, of the Jews to the wording of the sign. Uh, Jesus saying, I thirst. That's another citation from Psalm 22 and, and from Psalm 69. How about the whole scene where John, John is tenderly given charge of Jesus' mother? His cry of triumph, it is finished. It's not in any of the other Gospels. And the soldiers not breaking the legs of Christ and the piercing of his side with the sword. See, all of this eyewitness testimony is not only to fill in the blanks that might have been missed or historical gaps, but it's to continue to relay the clear message that John has been writing about in his entire gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, and all of this is being sovereignly orchestrated by God for specific purposes. This isn't an accident. And really the clear message that Jesus' death was also prophesied by the Old Testament writers. Now, regarding this sign incident, it would have been common for the condemned criminal to have a placard tied around his neck. Uh, this is uh, so-and-so Maccabeus guilty of uh, running a red light. No, it would have been treason. It would have been a bad crime. So Pilate does this intentionally so that everyone can understand it. Now, in my text, it says Hebrew. In some texts, it says Aramaic. Actually, Aramaic would have been the common tongue of the Hebrews of that day, but Aramaic and Hebrew are really close. Many idioms and words are the same exact uh, phrases in Aramaic and Hebrew. The other languages are, of course, Greek and Latin. And so this is so everyone, the Romans who, who were occupying the territory at the time, Jews, and any trader, you know, I've got stuff to sell and I'm going to be going somewhere else, but i got to go through Jerusalem, might as well make some money. I had that all the time. And this was the common language of, of it's almost like English today, was common Koine Greek. And for once, Pilate stands firm. If you're, if you're familiar with the rest of John's gospel, the sheer amount of times that Pilate goes from inside the praetorium back outside to talk to the Jews, back and forth, back and forth. It's almost like a, a, a metaphor for his vacillating mind. I don't really, I don't want to kill this guy. He is not guilty. I find no guilt in him. How many times did he tell the Pharisees, I have found no guilt? But at the end of the day, their pressure, politically, we're going to tell Caesar, you're told on. Remember when you're in school and someone says you're told on, it's as good as done, so you, oh, sorry. That's what Pilate did. 
gave him Jesus, crucify him. And what about these? So it would fulfill scripture sayings in John. Well, let's talk a little bit about fulfilled prophecy. When, when were some of these written? Well, Jason's text tonight came from about, what, 730 A.D.? Around there, 640? B.C., not A.D. And it's certainly not B.C.E. So. Right, I misspoke. Right, uh, 750 years before. So let's look at the ones. Uh, in the New Testament, we find these statements many times. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, so that the Scripture may be fulfilled. I'm preparing the Easter message, or Resurrection Day, if you, if you rather. This was to fulfill the scripture that he must rise again. It was all prophesied. And in fact, we know the story later on when, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's walking along with these two disciples, and, and they, they even get so bold to say, well, where have you been? Where have you been all these events taking place? And Jesus begins to explain to them the law and the prophets, all of these things written about the Lord Jesus. One we see, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen says, For dogs have surrounded me. What it, to a Jew, what was a Gentile? It was a dog. Unclean. That's why the, the, the enmity between the Jew and the Gentile continues even to this day for those who haven't received and repented and believed in Christ. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: for my clothing they cast lots. We heard, let's not tear the tunic. We'll, we'll gamble and see who gets it. In verse 29, we saw a jar of sour wine. Well, what is Psalm 69, 21? They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. I thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, which would have been like a sour wine. In verse 36 is Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. And all my bones are out of joint, which would happen to anyone who was hung on a Roman cross. You, I'm sure you're familiar with how this worked physically to extract the most pain out of the condemned criminal and make it a miserable, long, torturous death. It all had to do with the asphyxiation and trying to pull yourself back up to draw a breath and then hanging again. Your bones would be out of joint. However... Psalm 34:20 He keeps all his bones speaking of the servant of God not one of them is broken So they didn't break Jesus's legs that is to fulfill what was written a thousand years before BC And when Christ's precious side is pierced by a cruel Roman spear there's Zechariah 12:10 They will look on me whom they have pierced and also Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water. When the, when the spear would pierce that area around the heart after you've died, there's water that's gathered there. It's, it's a, a medical, it's one of those medical evidences they give for the veracity of the Bible. And blood and water pour out. It's interesting too, in Zechariah, when talking about the servant of the Lord, 
the me in that sentence, they will look on me who they have, they have pierced. Who's me? It's Yahweh. It's the covenant God of Israel. And of course, we know this to be true now as Christians because we believe Jesus is indeed the God-man, God in the flesh. Another detail. Remember, in the garden, he's surrounded by disciples. Here at the cross, how many disciples are with him? Just one. All of his friends and most of his family. You don't see his brother James hanging around the cross. There are only four who are close by as Jesus is put to death. One of them is John himself. John is a very humble writer. He won't refer to himself by name, but he says the disciple that Jesus loved or this witness, speaking of himself. And at this time, it's highly probable that that, uh, Jesus' mother Mary was a widow. And just look how how Jesus demonstrates that book of James. Isn't it ironic? At this time, James didn't believe he was the Messiah, but later on, James would would write, true religion is this, to keep yourself unstained from the world and look after who? Widows and orphans in their distress. Here's Jesus demonstrating true religion on the cross. So we'll come back to verse 30 in a second, but let's not miss what happens as the Jews demand for the legs to be broken. It's wicked irony. They want Pilate to speed the process up because tomorrow is the Passover Sabbath. And so they asked that Pilate break the legs of the three victims. That way they couldn't push back up and get a breath of air. And we can't have a cursed criminal hanging on the cross when we try to celebrate Passover. Listen, just think about this scene. Hold it in your thought. Here we have shedding innocent blood with relish, it seems. And what's their main concern? that their high holy day won't be polluted. The fulfillment of Passover. This is it. Remember Passover when God brought the Israelites out of the house of bondage into Canaan with promises and grapes as was big as this podium. That's probably clusters of grapes, but you know, prosperity. Amen. <clears throat> If they'll just obey and walk in my ways and obey my law, you can have it all. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is hanging on the cross. The fulfillment of Passover and by whose precious blood the angel of death will pass over the house of everyone who is united to Jesus by faith. And what is, what is how he's being murdered by the men who will, in fact, stubbornly reject reality in favor of the shadow. It's amazing. So let's go back up to verse 30 and just walk through quickly what I believe is applicable to us tonight. Help us to apply this historical narrative. You know that there's an old saying with pastors that you want to preach for application but you also don't want to force application because then it gets weird and you go, huh, I didn't see that in the text. What was he talking about? 
Let's go back to verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. With final triumph and exultation, Jesus cries, to telestai. We don't understand that because it's not English. It means done, finished. Luke says that he was crying out with a loud voice. Mark says he uttered a loud cry. And again, Matthew, a loud voice. So this wasn't just sigh of resignation. It is finished. No mere self-pitying whimper. Jesus thunders with his last breath. It is finished. The matter is concluded. Mission executed and accomplished. What mission? What, what just finished? We know what the purpose of his sufferings and death is, as Isaiah prophesied, and when, when Philip K. Bliss wrote that wonderful hymn that I think started Jason on his path towards traditional hymnody, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. There it is. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Back in John 12, 27, Jesus has told his disciples, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then in John 12, 32, and if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. In Matthew 1, 21, the angels already told us, this is one of my granddaughter's memory verses. Matthew 1, 21, he will save his people from their sins. So again, what was finished? We, we could say it was God's plan of salvation. Okay, that's finished. And that would be true. We could say that, okay, finally, all of those types and shadows in the old covenant are now fulfilled. All those stipulations about sacrifices and oxes and inner parts and boiling and waving, all of that's been fulfilled in Christ. And, of course, that would be true as well. But I want to say that when Jesus uttered that final cry, when he yelled out at the top of his ripped-to-shred lungs because crucifixion hurts, and I don't think Jesus was quiet, it hurts. And he yelled, it is finished. You focus down on what it is that is finished. It's that atonement for sin is finished and complete. Once for all, that's it. No more atonement. Atonement. Sometimes we use it in a common way to say that, you know, like a quarterback who threw three interceptions in the first half, came back in the second half, and won the game by a field goal. And, well, you know, Bart Starr atoned for his errors, that kind of thing. Daniel 9.24 says this, and he's speaking of the Messiah Prince, and he says, here's what he will do. He will finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. And then later on, after these events, and after Jesus ascends, Hebrews 9.26, now once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
once at the, at the perfect time, as, as, as Paul tells us later, at just the right time, Christ died for sinners. It all played out exactly as it, it was supposed to. Once it is finished, and at the cross there is no more sacrifice for sin to be done. Hebrews 10, 24 says, He, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What, what is indicated by Jesus sitting? Now, unless you're on a computer, when you, when you work, are you sitting down? No. You're standing. When I'm using my chainsaw, I don't sit down. That could be dangerous. You stand when you work. When your work is complete, then you sit down. It's like the old saying, the, the old guy, I don't get this lying in the sun stuff. You work in the sun, you lie in the shade. You rest when your work is done. The atonement is, is the absolute center of the cross work. We would say the, the, the work of the cross. And the shadows of atonement are all through the Old Testament, as we see with the, with the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, where the sins of the people were ceremonially laid on a goat, and the goat was sent outside the city. Where was Golgotha? Outside the city. You can't have that in here. More graphically, though, it's seen in the Passover lamb. That Passover lamb, which is a male, it's spotless, nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Without blemish, it's killed, and the blood is applied to the door, the lintels and the doorposts, so that the death angel passes over that house. He sees the blood. Oh, I'm not going to kill them. And afterwards, what do they do with the lamb? They consume it. They eat the lamb. The lamb points to Jesus. Jesus is that lamb. Every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering his death. So we don't do Passover anymore. What does he say? Unless you drink my blood, eat my body, you have no part in me. The Passover lamb, called a paschal lamb, not one bone could be broken in this lamb. And Jesus, again, fulfills this picture perfectly. And so as the Israelites applied the blood of that sacrifice in faith, remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. They did it in faith, looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises in Christ. Now we today apply this spotless blood of Christ to the doorposts of our heart, in all these ways, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes, Christ, our sacrifice, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Now, if you look at the word atonement, it's from a word family in the Greek, hilasterion, hilasmos. It would have been used by the authors of the Greek New Testament to point to the seat of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the blood would be sprinkled so that the people wouldn't die for their sins that year. By the way, what was being, what am I shaking around in my right hand? What is being used? Oh, a hyssop branch. Well, didn't we just read about a hyssop branch? Yeah. And of course, central to all of this is that 
This lamb was a substitute for the people it represented in the same way Christ. So I just want to, I want to conclude a little bit of big word stuff, but these are our words. If you're a Christian here tonight, these are your words. You own these, so you might as well embrace them and learn to love them and be able to explain what they mean. There's four aspects of the atonement. First is propitiation. How many have heard that word? Okay. Expiation. Reconciliation and redemption. Ruin sinners to reclaim. First of all, propitiation. What is this? It's P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N, just in case. This means that Jesus bore the wrath of God and the anger of God that was formally pointed right here. As James White cleverly says, in propitiation, Jesus took all of the heat of the red-hot blowtorch of justice that was aimed right at you. And it's hard to grasp even that Jesus was estranged from his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some scholars have tried to eliminate this theme of propitiation, of, of wrath and anger, they try to make it a synonym for the second word, expiation, which means to get rid of guilt. But that's not enough. The scholars just don't like the idea of God being angry with people because of their rebellion. What does Psalm 7:11 tell us? God is a righteous judge. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He's a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day in fact he's the only being in the universe who has the right to be indignant about sin God really is angry with the wicked and on the cross Jesus turned that anger away because he took it upon himself so it's like a shield and he turned it away from all of his people from all who had believed in the old covenant all the way through to our great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and then some who will believe. Romans 3.23, you could all quote it together, for all have sinned and being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Why? To declare righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. See, before we're converted, our state is, well, it's, it's pretty sad. It's pretty hopeless. Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 3. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. See that, have you ever heard of someone preach a sermon about indulging the desires of the mind? I want to be independent. I want to have my own autonomous reasoning. It's there. And we're by nature children who had made mistakes once in a while. No, Ephesians tells us that by nature, before conversion, we are children of wrath. But after we're converted to Christ, God's wrath is no longer directed us at us. Christ propitiated. He made perfect atonement. He bore in himself what 
none of us are able to bear. So that's the first, first aspect. Second one is expiation. It's much simpler. Expiation means to get rid of guilt. How does God get rid of our guilt? Because let me tell you, we can't get rid of our guilt. We may get rid of guilt feelings, but you don't get rid of guilt. This means that Jesus bore our sins as a perfect substitute, took them on himself, and therefore he did away with them on our account. We just read in Isaiah, accounting righteousness. Well, you can't do that until you've also negatively accounted guilt. You've got to get rid of the guilt. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Luther called this the great exchange. He was made sin for us. He became our substitute. And as such, he took the full penalty that we owed God, the penalty of death. And so by expiating, Jesus wipes the slate clean. We have nothing to fear from God, not in the servile, pagan sense of the word. We fear the Lord because he's He's awesome and holy, and we're not. And we're still working out our salvation, still becoming more mature and more sanctified. But we don't cringe in terror when we hear about God. In fact, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does this because he loves us. God forgives our sins fully and completely, and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. That's expiation. Getting rid of guilt. So on the cross, so far, we've got Jesus getting rid of the wrath of God and the reason for the wrath of God. Amen? He takes the wrath towards it and he gets rid of the guilt. Well, third, atonement is reconciliation. Now, we know what that is. You've got two parties. They're estranged and they come together. In this situation, the offended party is who? Well, it's God himself. His law is broken. Sin was committed against you and you only have I sinned. And God re requires that his justice be met because justice and God are not separable. Since we're now righteous in God's sight by expiation, he's no longer angry with us, propitiation. We are reconciled. No longer enemies. In sin, man is the enemy of God and vice versa. But Christ brings us together so that believers will live with God in blessed fellowship forever and ever. And again, we anticipate that fellowship. You know, what, what do you do when you have friends? You usually, hey, why don't you come over for dinner and you eat together? Well, that's what the Lord's Supper is. Again, it's a picture of God eating, feeding his people. It's glorious. So finally, atonement is redemption. Redemption means to buy something back. I, I often say when, when we're uh, worshiping in Syracuse that the price of redemption to buy us off of the, the, the auction block of slavery to sin was the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, when somebody sold a piece of property or even got so far into debt that he had to sell himself into slavery just so his family wouldn't starve, a relative could buy back either the property or even the man himself. And this relative is called a kinsman redeemer. He's a relative, and he buys back. 
Leviticus 25 describes him this way. In the book of Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth and her mother-in-law from poverty by doing what? Marrying Ruth. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, redeems her by marrying her. What is the church called? The what of Christ? The body and the bride of Christ? Christ is the groomsman. All those parables he told the the Pharisees about the, the groom and the bride, speaking about himself and his church. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says he's come to give his life as a ransom for many, buying us back as God's lost property. His sacrifice on the cross was an act of such great value, and it purchased for him a people of his own possession. So we belong to God not just by creation, but by redemption. So let me tie this all together and we'll close tonight. I said that this atonement is substitutionary. That is, when we say vicarious, that means on behalf of another, taking the place of another. And I said that on the cross, Jesus turned aside all of the anger that God had against sin. He turns that away for all of his people. He will save his people from their sin. So let me be more specific. On the cross, Jesus turned all of God's anger away from all of his people. What Jesus finished on the cross wasn't merely to make something possible. It wasn't just to put a plan in place so we can spin this thing and see how it works out. His cross work wasn't just maybe or could be, depending on you, it's provided, but hey, no. When he cried, it is finished. It was with your name on his mind. With all of God's elect in mind, Christ suffered a debt we did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Remember that old song? It's a good one. Nor could we ever pay it. He didn't give his life as a ransom for many, as in some impersonal, abstract group out there. No, he, he gave it for, for rebels like Paul and Tim and whatever your name is. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? How can Paul say he's cru... Really? Was Paul there on the cross? In one sense, yes. Because in you, when you're united to Jesus by faith, you, you have repented from your sins, no longer a self-ruler. Now you make yourself a Christ follower, a Christian. A, you're now God is your ruler. I'm not saying he's not already, but you know how it is. There's a time in your life before Christ where you're, you're thinking you're doing your own thing. You think it's all Fine, I run this show. That always works out so well, doesn't it? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The old Anglican theologian J.I. Packer the sure and certain finished work of the atonement will, quote, 
lead us to bow down before a sovereign Savior who really saves and to praise him for a redeeming death which made it certain that all for whom he died will indeed come to glory. What did Jesus promise those disciples back in John 6? He said, I've come to do the will of God, and the will of God is this, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise him up on the last day. Is, is Christ just saying that to make it possible that of all he's been given? No, Jesus doesn't lie. God doesn't lie. A redeeming death which made it not just possible, but certain that for all whom he died will come to glory. Let me close with this. It's an old hymn line from Isaac Watts. If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First, from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. What's he saying there? That Christ will indeed save his people from their sins. Are you in Christ tonight? Do you love Jesus more than you love the things of the world? If you're not a Christian tonight, if you don't know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have peace, not just a ceasefire, not just I've given up for a while, but peace with God, irene, shalom would be the Hebrew word. Trust in Christ. He's God in the flesh. And yes, he really rose from the dead, but that's in a couple days. Tonight we're talking about the payment made, the redemption of everyone who would come to Jesus in empty hands and trust only in him. Amen? All right, let's, let's pray together. Our gracious Father, indeed, we thank you for the love and justice both demonstrated at the cross of Christ. We thank you for the infinite price paid on behalf of vile and guilty sinners like us. And Lord, in our, in our current culture, it is so distasteful to think about blood and sacrifice, and yet the pagans do it with relish. Lord, help us to never forget the infinite price paid to secure our redemption, that we would honor you with our bodies, with our hearts, our minds, our words. Everything that we do would be in the name of Christ, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do. All because of Jesus and all because it is finished at the cross. Now, Lord, for all of us tonight, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen.